Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. At Lexia, we know literacy changes lives. As the gateway to the future for every student, literacy can boost their confidence and help them realize their full potential. Based on the science of reading, our literacy programs, along with all of those dedicated educators, can change the path of students' lives forever. We believe literacy can and should be for all. That's why at Lexia, we're all for literacy. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, Let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah. If you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special operations. Covert ops. Espionage. The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 157 of The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with Dave Park, de-producing back there in the corner. And we have our guest on the show today. We're very pleased to have Chris Cox on, who served in the Rhodesian White Infantry. He is the author of Fire Force, which is one of my favorite war memoirs. Uh, this, this book kind of has it all. It really encompasses the soldier experience, I, I feel like, Chris. Um, some of it is very funny about some of the practical jokes between you and your mates. Some of it is also horrifying and terrifying. And, you know, Chris really does not romanticize war at all in this book. Um, this is one of my, I'd say, top five war memoirs for me, Chris. Um, and I really appreciate that we were able to get in touch and, and have you as a guest on the show tonight. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, absolutely flattered. Uh, uh, I, I, I didn't set out to write that with, with any kind of expectations. I just wanted to sort of get it off my chest, really. And um, I think the big thing was uh, was the honesty, not t- trying to yeah. kind of glorify any, anything. But th- thank you for having me. Absolutely, Chris. Um, let's start off like we start off most of our episodes. If you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing, tell us about growing up in Rhodesia and the sort of pathway that took you towards military service. Sure. Um, I, I, I guess it was kind of 
accident by accident that I was born in Rhodesia. Uh, my father was British. Uh, my mother was uh, South African. Uh, my father came up to the colonies after World War II, looking for a better life away from the grayness and the bleakness of England. Uh, he could have gone anywhere. He could have gone to Canada, Australia, could have gone to America, New Zealand. Uh, he chose uh, Rhodesia. So it was total accident of birth that I was born there. Um, at the time, uh, after the Second World War, Rhodesia, like um, many uh, many British colonies from the British Empire, were clamouring for independence and Britain struggling to survive financially after the Second World War was trying to divest herself of all her colonies. Um, Rhodesia was one of the last uh, the last to go in terms of um, to, to black uh, African rule uh, simply because uh, there was a fairly large, a substantial white population um, of settlers, British, mainly British settlers who, who'd settled in the country, in the colony um, uh, since, since the turn of the century, since the turn of the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, I, I was born in 1957. Uh, when uh, the country was starting to go through its um, political upheavals in terms of uh, independence um, looming. Uh, and there was intransigence on, on both sides of the political divide. The, 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 the whites were not um, willing to surrender power, and the blacks obviously wanted power. So uh, ended up with a situation that there was only one way to resolve the issue, and that was uh, conflict, which happened, which started essentially in about 1964-65, um, when Rhodesia uh, declared UDI, which was a unilateral declaration of independence from Great Britain. Um, there was no political settlement, and uh, Rhodesia essentially became a pariah state uh, internationally yeah and so th that that's very kind of broad brushstroke of, of where it all began but what was it like for you on a more personal level growing up there uh and and kind of your upbringing and then coming of age right as the bush war really started to go hot i i think it, it was a kind of almost idyllic uh childhood um gr growing up white in in um Rhodesia at the time, uh, where the, the whites were pretty well a privileged uh, section of society. Um, there was a, a kind of apartheid in, in many respects. Uh, land was reserved pr primarily for white farmers. Um, there, there were black farmers as well, obviously, but uh, the majority of land was for, for white farmers. Um, there, there was uh, segregation uh, in, in um, education. Um, blacks weren't allowed to live in the white suburbs, that sort of thing. So uh, as a child, um, I was kind of oblivious to, to all this. Um, I, I knew vaguely that there was something not right. Um, uh, and I knew that the, the, the black people uh, essentially were, were regarded as uh, second-class citizens in the country. But to grow up, I mean, it was absolutely idyllic. Um, uh, country to grow up. I mean, 
beautiful climate, um, lots of outdoor activities. Uh, but at the, the back of your mind the whole time, there was this issue of um, the... Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, I apologize for this. Um, uh, we'll jump right back into it. I think we lost you right about where you're saying it was, it was quite idyllic as a child growing up in, in Rhodesia, but there was always this um, political baggage that you were aware of in the background. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to, to go to a um, private school. Uh, government schools, uh, state schools uh, were segregated. So you had schools for white kids, school for black kids. Uh, schools for colored kids, which were people of mixed race, as we called them, um, uh, schools for Indians. I mean, it was absolutely segregated. So, but I was fortunate enough to go to a private school for my uh, my high school years, uh, and private schools weren't um, restricted in any way. So uh, I had a lot of black friends who, who were at, at school with me. Um, so it was a little bit kind of a, a, away from reality because outside in the real world, um, Blacks didn't mix with whites. Um, so it was a, a little bit of a rude awakening uh, when I got called up to into the army. I was um, conscripted or drafted uh, to, to realize the, the, the depths of the, the, the segregation in the country. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it was, well, I say it was an idyllic uh, um, upbringing, um, yeah, outdoors activities, sports. Um, Fantastic, the bush, you know, go fishing on, on the Zambezi River and all this sort of thing. It was, it was fantastic, but um, it was an illusion in, in many respects. Um, and all the while, uh, slowly, slowly, the, the, the political upheaval uh, was slowly building up into, into a, a full-blown war from a sort of... Uh, almost like a police action to begin with. Um, it slowly sort of escalated as more and more um, uh, uh, black nationalist cadres were sent uh, overseas or in other country for, for training to, 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 to Russia, to this, the, the Soviet bloc, Algeria, Tanzania, places like that. Uh, <clears throat> so from about 1966, the first sort of uh, guerrilla incursions started into the country. Um, I was still at school, um, and um, you know the kind of propaganda at the time was well, these were a few kind of terrorists, as they were known, sort of running around um, causing mischief. They were being dealt with essentially by the police, um, and um, the 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 army was involved in the early stages. Uh, but it was still very kind of Mickey Mouse, uh, I'd say. Um, you know, it, it was the, the Rhodesian Light Infantry, the unit that I was was to join, um, essentially cut its teeth in the Zambezi Valley in the mid the mid sixties, and um, uh, you know, at the time, the white population um, believed they were kind of invulnerable. Uh, there was no ways that these um, ragtag terrorist bands were, were going to make any kind of difference <clears throat> that changed in 1972 but anyway <laughs> excuse me yeah if for you being conscripted into the military i mean presumably you could have sat back at a dispatcher's desk somewhere if you wanted to why, why did you choose the rli well they kind of chose me um 
uh, at the time, um, the, the, the RLR, the Rhodesian Light Infantry, was one of the few uh, regular, uh, sorry, excuse me, uh, military, uh, regular military units in, in the Rhodesian Army. Uh, there was the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Uh, there was the Rhodesian African Rifles, black uh, regular unit. Um, there were the Sulu Scouts that just started. <clears throat> and there was the SAS uh, Sea Squadron, who had been going on and off since uh, the days of the Malayan emergency. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, at the time, in 1975, when I received my uh, call-up papers, or drafted, as you guys would call it, um, the national service was 12 months. Um, I could have uh, um, been, uh, what was uh, exempted um, if I'd been called up earlier because I had, well, I still have seriously flat feet. <coughs> But that, uh, because of the shortage of manpower, that that became uh, that wasn't an issue anymore. And um, too bad you got called up. So I was called up, um, and I was told to report to uh, Cranbourne Barracks, which was the Rhodesian Light Infantry Barracks. I had no idea that I was going into the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Most um, national servicemen tended to, <coughs> excuse me, go down to Bulawayo, on the border with Botswana which was where the territorial or the, um, excuse me, the, the, the territorial army were, were based um, and where they did all their training. Um, territorial, I, I guess you could equate that to your kind of national guard, mm. um, not, not the sort of regular, um, regular army. Uh, but the Rhodesia Light Infantry was desperately short of manpower. And so they were starting to accept National servicemen. <laughs> sorry, can I get a glass of water? Yeah, Absolutely, of course, Chris. Or yeah, something stronger if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad idea. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. And sorry for the hiccup in the very beginning. Um, oh, we thought it might be on our end, but it, 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 right now we, we this don't is, even This is just the joys of doing a live uh, produced television or YouTube show uh, that you get these little bloopers <clears throat> sometimes and the people who watch the podcast will edit this stuff out for them. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, 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 quite all right. No worries, Chris. Quite all right. Um, so you arrive at the RLI, uh, unbeknownst to you. Uh, can you tell us about what the training was like at that time um, for the Rhodesian Light Infantry? And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but were they not uh, yet airborne qualified? I think in your book you talk about they, they were helicopter born and and then eventually airborne qualified. Uh, anyway, t please tell us. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, the Rhodesian Light, Light Infantry started off in 1961 when it was formed as a regular white uh, unit, an infantry unit, in, a regular infantry battalion. It was called a regiment, but it only ever had one one battalion. Um, it was made up um, in the early days predominantly of South African uh, volunteers. Um, the, the, the majority were, were South African volunteers. Um, it saw a little bit of action up on the uh, Congo border, which was its first um, kind of operational deployment. Uh, and then came back to Rhodesia in 
after the Congo had finished and uh, started essentially border control is what they called it, um, manning the border along the Zambezi Valley, the border with Zambia. Um, most of the guerrillas were based in Zambia and were infiltrating the country from there. Um, Latly, when uh, Mozambique or Portuguese East Africa fell uh, with the Carnation Revolution in 1974, the Mozambique overnight became a Marxist state and offered a sucker to the, the, the guerrillas, which added another uh, thousand miles of border for the Rhodesians to, to, to police. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> so the, the training in, in the whole Rhodesian army essentially was based on the British <coughs> system of training. Excuse me again. Um, still very much kind of post-Second World War uh, training. Um, I mean, it, it was almost identical, uh, and a lot of our instructors, in fact, were were British uh, from from various guards regiments, uh, things like that. <coughs> a lot of our um, officers were trained overseas at Sandhurst um, uh, and the various military colleges in the UK. So it was very much a British-based system, um, and and it always was. That never really changed. Sorry, this is very embarrassing. No, it's okay. Take take your time. If you need to get a lozenge or... Yeah. Thank you. And maybe a brandy. There, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, it was all spit and polish and drill um, for your first six weeks of training. Training was essentially <coughs> 20 weeks. Um 21 weeks, I think it was, and was divided into three phases. The first phase was your basic training. I think what you'd probably call boot camp was similar, similar, I think, <coughs> where it was essentially based on fitness and uh, drill, marching, route marches, that sort of thing. A lot of per, uh, square bashing parades, shiny boots. <coughs> I might have to go and get a lozenge just, just now. And a brandy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, th th that was that was your, your basic training. From there, you had a choice of, of whether you, well, you sort of had a choice whether you'd specialize and perhaps go into um, armored cars or medics or uh, a, a different arm of, of the service. Most of us, though, stayed on as infantrymen um, and continued with the second phase of, of training, which was known as the classical war stage. It lasted another six or seven weeks. And there it was, as suggested, a classical war, learning your battle drills and a conventional war, you know, uh, trench warfare, <coughs> that sort of thing. Um, and then the third stage was a phase with another six weeks was a counterinsurgency phase, which was more, more what we were going to be doing. Um, Again, it's uh, very much based on, on the British system. A lot, a lot of um, uh, disciplines based on experiences from Malaya, the Malayan insurgency. <coughs> In fact, a lot of the terminology we used came from Malaya, and like bashes and things like that, use CT, communist terrorists, that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and there was very much um, on um, 
tracking uh, in, in the bush, um, camouflage, concealment, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, uh, and, and, and during that phase, uh, we went on what was called a survival course. You get thrown into the bush with nothing, and you've got to survive for a couple of weeks. <coughs> and yeah, that was it. And then, then you, you've eventually passed out. As, uh, you, you, you qualified as a, 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 a trooper in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, and you were posted to one of the commandos, which um, were effectively companies that... Um, in 68, I think, somewhere around there, perhaps, uh, the Rhodesian Light Infantry had changed from a conventional um, uh, battalion with companies to uh, a commando unit. And so the companies became commandos, uh, platoons became, um, uh, uh, where they come, uh, troops. Uh, you know, section sections became sticks and that kind of thing. So, but it was very much the same. You know, I, I never really understood what the difference was becoming a commando unit, other than um, we were adopting the role that we actually should have been, which was light infantry. Um, and and commandos just, I think, just sounded quite romantic. Yeah. To be honest. <coughs> At the time, the Rhodesian light infantry was still a, a basic. Um, Infantry unit, um, helicopter um, born um, for for fire force operations. Um, 1976 was the the third phase, I would call it, of the war uh, when it really intensified um, uh, exponentially. 72 um, was when it started in earnest. Uh, from the early days of the 66 onwards when it had been a few brief kind of incursions. Uh, 72, uh, they flooded the northeast of the country and 76 uh, with the whole Mozambican border down the eastern side of the country. Um, they basically saturated the east and the northeast of the country, they being the guerrillas, Zanla, Mugabe's crowd. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the, the way the Rhodesians were dealing with this, with, with these incursions, uh, was a cordon sanitaire, a minefield along the complete, well, pretty well the complete border, which was a massive undertaking. Um, quite effective, but yeah, I mean, it was porous. Um, and then uh, with the territorial battalions uh, stationed along the border, operating various sectors in, in, in static roles and the Rhodesian Light Infantry and the Rhodesian African Rifles, the RAR, conducting fire force operations, which really started in about 1974. Um, fire force really was just uh, um, an airborne um, reaction, quick reaction force. Uh, to a, a guerrilla sighting or, or an incident um, just to envelop the guerrillas um, as quickly as possible from the air initially with um, in our little Alouette three helicopters. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, but as the war intensified in 1960, quite quickly in fact, um, which was my first year in, in, in the army, um, it was very soon realized that uh, there just weren't enough helicopters. Um, 
I mean, we, I think the country had perhaps, including what was on loan from South Africa, maybe 30, perhaps 35 um, Alouette 3 helicopters. So, you know, to, to, to kind of police that kind of border, um, link border with, with the, such so few helicopters, it just as it wasn't working. Uh, so the Rhodesians needed to, to get more men into the, the action quicker, more quickly. Uh, and so the, the, they adopted um, uh, parachuting uh, as, a, as a means of doing that. Um, so from the Far Force, which had a, what they called a K car and three G cars. So the K car was the command alouette, which had the ground commander, normally the commando major, um, he he was in that with uh, the the the, the K car was armed with a twenty mil cannon, a spanner cannon, and that flew in an anti counterclockwise orbit at precisely eight hundred feet, which is what twenty mil was calibrated to. Uh, then the G cars, which were the troop carrying <coughs> helicopters. Um, each one carried a stick of four troopers, plus the, obviously the pilot and then a gunner technician who was an Air Force guy. Um, he manned the uh, twin. Each each um, Alouette was armed with um, twin uh, Brownings. Yeah, and so the first wave, as they call it, of helicopters with the K car would would go to the action. Uh, to the scene of, scene of the action, um, guided and generally by uh, the, the call sign on the ground, who would probably be Seleuze Gartz, um, op operating clandestinely, uh, but in, any, any kind of unit um, who was on perhaps um, uh, OP uh, uh, duties or something like that uh, would, would call us in. And so we'd arrive there, try and get as many troops into, into the action as quickly as possible, to, to essentially surround surround the guerrillas and um, and then close them and and prevent them from escaping and kill them. It was a fairly sort of simple as simple as that. It was nothing fancy. Uh, the parachuting element um, brought suddenly. You, you didn't go in there with just twelve men. You could now have. 16 or 20 paratroopers going in at the same time. So you more than doubled your, your capacity of your fire force. Um, and at the same time, there was what was called the land tail uh, was hot footing it from, from the nearest uh, fire force base with um, the trucks bringing further troops in if it wasn't too far. That, Chris, yeah, that was could, it. Um, could, yeah. uh, could you tell us then about, uh, no, thank you for explaining the fire force concept for a lot of people who, who aren't aware. Could you tell us about your first contact, uh, operational uh, contact with the enemy? Yeah. Um, it, it was kind of, it was a bit of a blur. I, I think it is for most people. Um, it was, we were on, it was my first bush trip, um, which is what we called it. So I'd, I'd finished my training. Been posted into the commander, uh, and we were sent up to the fire force base at Mount Darwin, which was in the uh, Operation Hurricane area of the country, with the northeast of the country, on the um, 
Mozambican border up there, uh, where, where the guerrillas were infiltrating from. And it was, it was a hot area, as they called it. Um, and uh, three commander, which was the commander I'd been posted into, was on fire force duty um, for our, our, our first bush trip. A bush trip was about generally about six weeks. So you spend six weeks on fire force duty and then you were ro rotated out for R&R for 10 days or retraining for 10 days and then back to another fire force. So it was May 76. Been in the commando uh, for about a week. And um, there had been call-outs uh, pretty well every day. The siren would go and... Um, the various troops or platoons within the commando rotated. So, you know, you, you were on first wave one day and then perhaps second wave the next day. Um, and we happened, my my platoon, 11 troop, as it was known, uh, we were on first wave. And I was in a stick with um, uh the, the, uh, an Australian, he was um, a little Australian guy, was um, our stick leader. Um, and he only had about a month of his three-year contract to go. Really good little soldier. Uh, <coughs> and I remember sitting <coughs> in the front of the, of the helicopter with um, the machine gunner next to me was a national serviceman. Um, and and he, he turned around to me and uh, as as we were, we were flying off, and I mean, it was uh, the adrenaline. It, it, it was it was quite a buzz. It really was, and uh, it was all kind of brand new. And we suddenly we're off to war, and uh, this machine gunner turned around to me, and I mean, I thought he was a kind of real macho kind of Rambo kind of guy, and he said, "Aren't you scared?" <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I don't know what to say to that because I wasn't. I wasn't scared. I didn't know what on earth we were going into. Um, and he turned around and said, I am. Um, and I was absolutely gobsmacked that, that um, so, somebody could, could openly admit that. Um, uh, <clears throat> anyway, we got, got onto the ground and um, I had no idea what was going on. Um, we, our stick was dropped. Um, what happened in a fire force situation was the sticks would be dropped. Uh, we were called stop one, two, and three based on the helicopters. So stop one would be positioned, say, there, stop two over there. And they would form stop groups to stop the uh, the enemy, the guerrillas fleeing. So we would basically, we would be positioned on obvious like paths or uh, along a river line where the guerrillas might try and escape. Uh, and then, then the second wave would come in and they would then form a sweep line or they would combine with the stock groups and then sweep into the, the, the middle of the contact area. So <clears throat> we were in, it was quite thick bush and uh, we were sort of sweeping forward. I, I just remember my, my, my overriding fear was that I would do something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was absolutely terrified that uh, we had to maintain our step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Dressing, that you didn't go too far ahead or too far behind, that you didn't bunch up with the guy next to you. I mean, we used to, probably in a sweep, we were 10 to, between 10 and 20 meters apart. So... It, it was quite a long way, and, and God forbid if you, you, you got too close to the guy next to you. Um, anyway, we were sweeping forward, and then uh, we were told to go to ground uh, because the, uh, the Lynx, which is a Ream Cessna ground attack aircraft, which accompanied every fire force operation, which was armed with snare rockets and napalm <gasps> and, and, um, and Brownings, I was coming in to do a, a napalm run uh, to our front. It came in low, 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 low. Um, like, like a, I remember the thing, thing is like a shark. And it was so slow. It was almost like in slow motion, but, you know, propeller-driven job, which in hindsight, absolutely perfect for, for the job it was doing. And um, these, we call them Frantan, uh, which is a euphemism for um, napalm. Uh, these uh, Frantan um, pods just sort of came tumbling out slowly, and then um, then, then the, the, the sort of inferno in front of us uh, sort of just lit up the place. And I, and I remember the smell. Uh, that, I distinctly remember the smell. That, that, that still sticks with me to this day, and I'm sure um, your guys from, from Vietnam, it's the same sort of thing. But... Uh, <clears throat> We were then so right, sweep, you know, up you go, and we sweep forward again. And then, you know, all the time I'm looking, looking, looking at the machine gun. I was next to him, um, looking at the stick leader, um, who hadn't said a word to me. I mean, I might have, been, I may as well have been invisible. Uh, and then suddenly he had his weapon in the shoulder, bang, bang, double tapped, and um, he shot a gorilla. Just, just kind of it was absolutely amazing. I was just staggered that um, he, he'd seen this kind of lump hiding in the bush and uh, and within a flash he dispatched him and I just amazed. Anyway, we swept forward and we found several, uh, there were several more gorillas we found who'd been <coughs> taken out by the 20 mil cannon and by the um, napalm strike. And so... The, the, the contact came to an end. Um, now, hang on. And before that, when, when the stick leader had been had shot this guy, um, the machine gunner just opened up. Um, I had no idea what he was shooting at. And uh, so I thought, well, I better start shooting. Um, I didn't know what at. I mean, I couldn't see anything. And uh, so I put the weapon on my shoulder and um, fired a couple of rounds and sort of, wondered if I was allowed to do that sort of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and so I banged off a few rounds. It felt good. Um, no one had sort of upbraided me for doing that. And then um, we'd cleared the area, which was apparently what we were doing, um, firing into, into cover. 
went forward and and um, that was the end of the contract and then we had to go back and um, the grisly task of collecting all the the bodies the enemy bodies when you know at the time they were all um, recovered and taken back to um, special branch for identification being a parent can be really challenging it's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children that's why child and family resource network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Um, yeah, as the war progressed, that... that and then how did you guys uh, exfil from situations like that? Did you have to walk a certain way? Did the trucks meet you at a certain point? Did they come all the way to you? It, yeah, it depended uh, where we were or how far. Uh, if, if the land tail, um, it depended whether we'd incurred casualties, how many bodies we had to get out, whether the helicopters were uh, could take us back, okay. back to base. Um, yeah. Uh, generally, we, we went out by helicopter, but sometimes we'd go back by truck if, if they'd arrive in time. Um, so you're, yeah. you guys are going in and basically three birds of four, four man sticks. So 12 people. And are there generally like two? So you, there were there, the first 12 going as like the blocking force where you set up the, the yep. post. And then, yep. th and then a second team of 12 comes in to do the sweep. And then yes. what, like what, cause that's, that's a very small force for, for operations. What size forces were you guys going up against? And were there ever times when, when your leadership would wave it off because they felt like it was grabbing a, a tiger by the tail? I don't think that, that, that ever happened, but it came close. It, it certainly did. Um, I, I think we were pretty well uh, outnumbered all the time uh, on the ground by, by the enemy. Um, but we were fearless. I mean, we had air power. We, we, uh, they, they didn't have helicopters. They didn't have a 20 mil or a Lynx with napalm. Um, they didn't have our MAG guns. Um, they didn't have our FNs that, that we had. They had those little AKs, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, at times... Um, I mean, that, that first contact, we were probably up against a, I'd say, a group of perhaps at the time, the standard group would be 30 to 40 wow. um, gorillas. Uh, 
of the 30 to 40, by the time we got there, uh, quite a lot of them might have bombshelled and escaped. Um, uh, that, that bombshell escaped a crash RV and then meet up a few days later. Right. Um, but inevitably, inevitably there, there were a fair chunk of them who, who got caught or were hardcore enough to want to remain, stay and fight. <coughs> that did happen. Um, and particularly as the war progressed, they became more and more emboldened and braver and um, uh, they became fairly sort of, uh, they were good fighters uh, by, by the end of the war. So, uh, and, and women as well. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, but so from the time that somebody like a Salu scout or whoever was out there and identified the target, from the time they called back to the unit, the troop on rotation, how long would it for, be for you guys to do your planning to load the birds and to and to be on and to move out to be on target, or at least to be airborne? Okay, um, it varied. Um, quite often, the briefing was done in the air on the way to the target. We had no idea wow. where we were going. We just get on the helicopter and go. But generally, from the time the siren went, which announced the call out, uh, we would be airborne within uh, five minutes. Um, all our kit and gear was all by the helicopter. You know, it was just a question of just shrugging on your webbing and away you go. That's really, I mean, a testament, you know, with all, with all of our modern technology, that's a testament to the pilots. It's a testament to you guys on the ground. In order to, to strategically position troops with that little warning, not really being having done, you know, good map studies against a target that's probably moving, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I, I mean, we had some pretty good guys, um, uh, you know, sort of officer corps sort of running running the battles in the K-Car. I think the big thing for them and liaising with the Air Force, because um, all our airborne assets were all Air Force, not Army. So it was liaising with the, um, the K-Car pilot who was generally a squadron leader. Um, their big issue was where were, where were we going to position the, the fuel to resupply the helicopters and where we were going to reposition all the um, uh, ammunition uh, for, you know, the spare ammunition uh, which would be needed. Um, so it, it was a, very much a logistical exercise as well. And that's where um, the sergeant major uh, was involved, the commander, and that was his job really was to, to, to get that all all going so he would be told the sergeant major you know contact at um uh call out to uh, whatever our uh, lock stat was on the map and then it was his job to um get fuel and ammunition on the trucks to as close to that place as possible as quickly as possible um that would happen um it depended. I mean, uh, if if the actual callout or the contact was reasonably close to the fire force base, sometimes they were only five, ten minutes flying time mm -hmm. from from the fire force base. But sometimes they were thirty, forty minutes. Um, you know, so so by the time the, the 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 birds got to the contact area, they couldn't spend much time in the air before they had to turn around and and, and go go away anyway. Uh, and 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 collect the second wave. So, <coughs> yeah, it, it a lot of it was done on the fly. It really was. Um, and there were occasions where, when we took off, I don't think even our our G car pilot knew where, where he was going, and they would be briefed 
in the air um, uh, what, what, the, what the, the destination was and what the plan of attack was. And um, when we got to the area, then the, the, the K car would go in there first um, to his 800 feet. Um, he, the, 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 the major and the K car pilot would assess the whole situation and then decide where they're going to drop the um, uh, drop drop their sticks, drop the stops. Yeah, Chris, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, as 1976 goes on, you're getting a lot of experience as a young infantryman. Uh, one of the things that you guys did, uh, quite risky, was external operations. And I was wondering, and, and correct me when I mispronounce some of these names. I'm sorry. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Rambanani, Rambanani, Rambanai. Yeah. Rambanai. Um, yeah. Could you tell us about that action? Yeah. Uh, I mean, as as troopers on the ground, we we of course knew how the war should be <laughs> should be run, <laughs> and um, it was obvious that the the guerrillas, the external, when we say external base camps, training camps, uh, logistical camps, were based in Zambia and Mozambique. They would then, where there would be thousands of carders in various stages of training, or being used as uh, camps, you know, coming back from Russia or, or Tanzania, wherever they've been trained, and then from there being infiltrated into the country. Um, a lot of these camps, um, they were fairly substantial camps and uh, at any one time they, they might have uh, five to ten thousand people in them and there would be for example in Mozambique there might be four or five camps like that along the border um, in Zambia there might be two of ten ten thousand people each um, and w when I say people uh, that all of various um, from raw recruits with no training to uh, fully qualified trained guerrillas who were ready to infiltrate the country or guerrillas who'd been exfiltrated uh, for R&R or retraining or whatever <coughs> purposes. So it was pretty obvious that if you want to get to the core of the problem, you attack the camps, uh, the external camps. Um, but politically, uh, it was a, a dangerous game. Um, uh, Mozambique, for example, was supported by uh, China, Red China, and uh, to some extent Cuba. So there were a lot of um, Cuban and Chinese instructors um, in the camps. Zambia, which was Zipra, the other um, guerrilla faction was supported by Russia. So there a lot of Russian instructors there. So it was it was a dangerous game, apparently, that, that what we called cross-border or external operations to, to cross over the border and take out these camps um, at source, essentially. And the Seleuscouts showed the way in spectacular fashion in August 1976. Um, Reed Daly, Colonel Reed Daly, who was a commander of the Salute Scouts, uh, had identified, whose intelligence had identified a camp um, called Nyadzonia, uh, which was a Zanla camp, um, probably about 
50 miles across the border, east of the Rhodesian border, towards the Indian Ocean in Mozambique. And in that camp, there were probably between five and 10,000 recruits um, undergoing training. Each camp at the same time had a large element of um, Frelimo, which are regular Mozambican army um, troops um, protecting the camp. Um, sometimes several companies, um, and they were fully trained um, uh, Marxist troops. Um, so what the Salus Scouts did, they had permission. This was the first significant cross-border raid where it was being done overtly in terms of as far as the world was concerned. Um, and they drove in. Um, I mean, outrageous what they did. They dressed up as Frelimo troops, um, all, of, all the Salus Scouts, got on trucks that had been painted in um, or captured from Frelimo, painted in Frelimo camouflage, and they drove across the border into the camp um, as su supposedly Frelimo troops. They drove, the convoy drove into the camp. All the recruits, thousands of them, were actually on parade at the time, um, were, were, were amazed when the, suddenly the, 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 the Salus scouts dropped their, their pretense and opened up with um, their heavy machine guns and whatever and, and absolutely slaughtered. I mean, thousands, thousands were, were killed then. Um, and then made good the escape. That that kind of set the, the benchmark for what was achievable. I think mm -hmm. they managed to kill something like 2,000 um, recruits at that time. <laughs> and of course, learned a fairly harsh lesson. And what, what they did was they um, moved the camps further into the interior, so further away from the border. Um, so it became more and more difficult for the Rhodesians to just couldn't just nip over the border and, 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 and take out a camp, um, which is what we were doing when we attacked um, this little camp at Rambanai, which was, was it was actually a Frelimo camp. Um, and I think uh, we were pretty, when I say we, the Rhodesian army was certainly the Rhodesian Light Infantry were, were pretty raw uh, at, at cross-border operations. Um, we hadn't had very much experience at it. Um, in, in the old days, as they called it, uh, we used to operate with the Portuguese on their counterinsurgency operations in Mozambique, but that obviously left in 1974. So um, it, we walked in across the border. Um, two, two of our commanders, three commander, and I think some of two commander. So it was just a classic cocker. Uh, it, it was like 200 troops in, a, in, in single file at night marching. And, and you know what happens with a long yeah. line of troops. They end up this sort of concertina. Yeah. And, you know, the, the head stops and then the tail stops and then, then the head gets lost. And it was just a disaster, absolute disaster. And um, I was the last man in three commander. And then behind me was two commander, I think. 
Um, and what was other? Yeah, yeah, I was. I, and anyway, I somehow managed to get the whole of two commando lost. Um, I don't know what I did. I think it was the guy behind me, the two commando guy, who was a total arsehole. And and and, and <coughs> he got lost, and he went veering off on a path, and um, lost, managed to lose the whole the, the whole of his platoon. Um, yeah, it was an absolute disaster. And um, I mean, we came away. Uh, I think uh, the map reading was appalling. We, we we didn't find the camp, and it was only ten miles across the border. Uh, so we came away um, and aborted the whole operation. Um, we went back uh, a few months later, having learned our lesson, and this time around it was a lot more successful. Um, we were with um, operating with SAS. I mean, this is what they did. That's right. what they did for a living, SAS. So we were working with them and. Uh, Unfortunately, they lost two guys on the way in, stood on um, AP mines. Um, but yeah, it was a, a much more successful operation. Um, unfortunately, it was against Frelimo, um, the Mozambicans. Um, I think we just wanted to show them that they weren't safe either. Uh, <coughs> and so we didn't kill many um, Zanla uh, Zimbabwean guerrillas at all. Uh, there, there were a few for Lima, and I think we maybe killed a couple of dozen, and we destroyed the camp. Um, so it was, in effect, a successful operation. But it was, in terms of what came later with the big, big camp attacks from '77 onwards, um, it was small fry. It really was small beer. So. You guys had been, I mean, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys had mostly been operating as like this, this strike force uh, of small units. And that's a very different skill set than like nighttime patrols, long patrols through. Did you, were you guys constantly like training for that or did you sort of have to shift gears pretty quickly? We shifted gears. We, we weren't too sure what our role was. Um, and in 76, when, when we first started, the, the modus operandi was half of the commando would be on fire force duties. The other half would be patrolling in the bush um, and doing OPs and night ambushes and that sort of thing. So we weren't really sure what our role was. And it, it, it only evolved when the pressures intensified and they needed um, fire force to be a fully manned operation all the time. Um, and so by 78, 1978, um, we didn't go on patrols or we didn't do ambushing or, you know, conventional counterinsurgency operations, um, you know, OPs, which was um, sort of our bread and butter in, in terms of catching the enemy. But <coughs> we, we purely onto a strike force role. And from 1979, it actually went one stage further where the RLI were now only involved in cross-border operations with very limited internal fire force operations. So, yeah, that, that became, the, the RLI became essentially a, 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 an external strike force as opposed to a, an internal fire force. Yeah. yeah. 
It's very Chris, interesting. I, uh, I was wondering, I mean, the one of the tougher chapters in your book, The Civilians, I was wondering if you could tell us about that. I mean, it's a very, it, it, it's kind of a haunting chapter in your book. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the guerrillas, uh, their tactics were uh, ruled by fear. Um, their goal was to um, occupy the ground uh, in the tribal areas um, outside the cities what we called at the time the tribal trust lands, <coughs> which was where the bulk of the people lived, the peasants, um, sort of a rural, uh, you know, um, rural agriculture, uh, small-scale farmers, um, and they were caught between a rock and a hard place. They, they really were, they, um, the civilians, they were... They, they, they had to uh, give succor to the guerrillas. They had to feed them. They had to shelter them. They had to give them their women. Um, otherwise, they would be regarded as sellouts and effectively taken out um, in some really ugly ways, uh, cruel, very terrible ways. Yeah. So it was a total rule by fear, um, but it was effective. Um, the Rhodesians could do very little uh, to, to counter this, and um, uh, the, the, the 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 people were, were caught, as I say, absolutely in a rock and a hard place. If they were caught giving assistance to the guerrillas, they would be punished, mm -hmm. um, which which normally meant their kraals, uh, their their villages being burned down. I mean, and where did they go? You know, um, so. It was, they, they were in absolutely no-win situation. And in a short space of time, vast swathes of the country became controlled by the guerrillas, um, certainly at night. And uh, when I say vast swathes, I mean massive pieces of real, real estate, um, certainly along the, whole, the, the border areas. The cities... Um, uh, they came later. Uh, they, you know, they, 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 the guerrillas followed the Maoist um, doctrine of uh, swimming with the people and eventually taking the, the conflict to the stage where it would be conventional warfare into the cities. Never quite got to that stage, but there were sort of um, so, some attacks uh, around Salisbury, the capital, um, and in the capital itself, um, several... Uh, guerrilla operations. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 the terror tactics um, was a deliberate campaign of terror conducted by the guerrillas. Um, absolute rule of fear and, um, and often um, to our sort of Western kind of eyes, there, there was just no logic to, to, to what was done. Um, uh, a lot of it was was killing by example, and it wasn't just shooting the guy. It was you know a, a chief or something who who hadn't um, given his his women, for example, to the guerrillas. He would be bayoneted and tied up with barbed wire and tortured for several hours, 
before he was put out of his misery. And um, we came across, I mean, it was obvious, uh, it had to happen that we, we did come across several uh, occasions of, of um, a, a guerrilla um, atrocities, essentially. Um, I mean, the one, that three commander we were involved in, um, I personally didn't go to it, but uh, I was um, on fire force at the time, was at the Katio Tea Estates, which was a big tea, tea growing operation on the eastern border. <clears throat> and um, the guerrillas came in one night and um, they executed like 30 workers or 30 or 40 workers, just tied them up and, and, and bayoneted a lot of them um, for no apparent reason and other than to instill fear and perhaps shut down the whole tea operation, which um, in time they did. You know, uh, so, yeah, they, they, they were atrocities, yeah, bad ones. And you yeah. talk about one of the ones you got called up to to respond to and something that you, you had nightmares for just years and years afterwards. And, I mean, it sounded the way you wrote it, I, I think you said specifically that event changed you. You, you, weren't, you weren't the same person. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think the whole issue of, I mean, from, from where um, our Australian stick leader in May 76 shot that one gorilla, um, and then, you know, we had to deal with the body afterwards, mm -hmm. um, the bodies and the, the way that we dealt with them. Um, I was quite shocked. There was kind of, you just, uh, there were just pieces of meat and, um, you know, dragging them and <coughs> looting the bodies, taking the money and whatever you could find. Um, so death became, well, I think any war, uh, death just becomes kind of all pervasive. And, but when you see it affecting women and children, I think that's, that's what kind of did it for me. I, I remember, um, the one particular incident, which uh, I, I still, it, it's kind of like surreal that, um, and I still have to sort of wonder sometimes whether it actually happened. And I was, it was in 1978, I was carrying a machine gun, a machine gun, um, and the Air Force had gone in and had bombed a village, quite a significant village. Um, the the guerrillas had been in there, um, which they did. They would they would hide with the people, um, and we tended not to take any cognizance of that. And if the guerrillas were there, we'd we'd bomb the village regardless of their civilians there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, feel, I remember it was a big village. There must have been about a hundred huts altogether, which was a, a significant village. So you know probably several, a couple of hundred people lived there. Um, and the, 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 the Air Force had been in there uh, with, um, I think they'd been in there with the, the, our big bombers, which at the time would have been possibly the Canberras, um, but certainly with um, hunters. <clears throat> and they'd gone in there and, and dropped their bombs. And then we were then to sweep in and pick up any guerrillas who were still there or uh, in the village. And when we went in the village, it was 
there were bodies everywhere. Um, and at first I couldn't tell, you, you just see lumps, you know, on the ground. You can't tell whether they're men, women, children, whatever. And uh, we were then told, um, it soon became obvious that they were mainly civilians. Um, there might have been a couple of guerrillas. I never found out. Uh, and we were then told we had to go and um, drag all the bodies into a central place um, for identification or burial. I'm not, I'm not sure. <coughs> As a machine gunner, um, I was exempt from, from that because my job was to, to, to sort of stand guard um, on the periphery while all the other guys went and did this. And next to the hut where I, I was squatting with my machine gun, um, there were two, uh, two little children um, dead. Um, and I looked at these bodies for, for a while, you know, and I thought uh, they maybe were like one and three or something. I mean, sm small kids, you know. I couldn't see any visible wounds or anything on them. Um, but they were clearly dead, and I thought, I can't just leave them there, you know. So I, I slung my gun, and I, I picked them up, um, like one in each hand. That's how small they were. And I sort of picked them up by a leg each, in, in each hand, and I sort of wandered um, in a daze to the pile where the bodies were being uh, <coughs> dumped. And I remember putting them on there, and... I somehow felt a little better that, that I sort of put them there. Um, but it was a very um, out-of-body experience. It really was. And even now, I sort of, at the time, I, I remember I was sort of like looking down um, on myself, carrying these two babies or little children, you know, and, and um, dumping them. Uh, or, or throwing them on the pile. It was just too awful. Um, so, yeah, that, that just that just lived with me for, still does. Um, yeah, not, not, a, not a nice thing. Yeah. Trying to move on to a bit of a little happier or more upbeat yeah. note. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I appreciate you telling that story, Chris. I really do. Um, went off to parachute training, 1977, as the RLI went airborne. Uh uh, you did a little bit of time in detention uh, for your misdeeds, <laughs> for, for for accidentally shooting off a pistol, uh, and then you crossed paths with um, with John Cronin, who yes. was a previous guest on the show. Do you want to tell the story about John and his Golden Lab? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm trying to think of what John he, he had his Golden Labrador. Um, I can't remember what its name was. It might have been something like Daisy or something like that. Was it lucky? And, yeah, it's in there somewhere. Yeah. And he absolutely idolized this dog, the beautiful dog, and the troops did too. And uh, the dog obviously went everywhere with, with Lucy. John. Lucy. Lucy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And someone had written in the in the the ablutions in the toilets with spray paint, Lucy. Lucy fucks bulldogs. And Cronin got to see this. And uh, he was the officer on duty at the time. And 
he and he was a quiet guy, you know, um, in his quiet way. But you could see there was a hint of a smile when he he upgraded the whole commander, and we were given uh, extra pokey drill, <laughs> which is hor- horrible. That bloody I don't know if you know what pokey drill is. The exercises with your weapon. Oh, like uh, rifle PT. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he gave us a half an hour extra rifle PT because <laughs> some someone, and I know who the guy was who did it, who wrote Lucy fucks bulldogs. Excuse my language in in the toilets. Yeah, but he had a good sense of humour. Um, and yeah, he he had the the sort of legend of of his his operation when we do we're doing a cross border patrol as opposed to a raid, um, got a different sort of thing. We just go go across the border, get dropped off there, um, supposedly clandestinely at night in a helicopter. The SAS would free fall in, of course, uh, <coughs> and then we'd walk around in the bush um, hoping to stumble on, on, on some bad guys. Uh, and he did, Coleman, John Coleman, uh, John Con- uh, Cronin, big upon. John Coleman was another American friend of mine, um, ex Special Forces actually. Um, he was an eleven troop. He became our, he was our color sergeant. I, I digress. Anyway, I, I think I mentioned my book about uh, um, John Cronin's episode when he he uh, stopped. Um, I think it was a two five uh, with a. They were in ambush. His his stick was in ambush on a, on a track, and they heard a vehicle coming. It was a two five, Deutz, um, uh, full of, uh, Zandler guerrillas with two Chinese instructors, one driving. The, the patrol wasn't properly in position at the time, so <coughs> he couldn't couldn't spring the ambush, but he took a chance and hoped they'd come back, which they did but without the two Chinese, um, uh, lucky for them. And John Cronin, in true Hollywood style, stepped out into the middle of the road and sort of hand raised and said, stop or we open fire, stop or we shoot, you know, words to that effect. And um, of course, the the guys in, in the vehicle went for their weapons and Bang, they got taken out in, in seconds. You know, the whole lot of them were taken out and, and the vehicle was blown up. But so that that sort of went down in, in legend as um, John John Cronin, this the Hollywood guy with his with his <laughs> Labrador. Yeah, what a good guy. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. Uh, again, correct my mispronunciations here. The raid on uh Shimo? Shimo? Shimoyo. Shimoyo. Yeah. Uh, can yeah. you tell us about that op in 1977? Yeah. Um, that, <coughs> I wasn't there. I was on leave. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't. Uh, but uh, the whole commando went, and I was really angry that I'd missed that. Um, but because of, you know, hush, hush, you went, went to know this. So I went on leave like nothing was going to happen. Uh, but that, that was um, probably of the war, the... The, the most successful cross-border raid that the Rhodesians ever conducted. Um, it was done with um, a total of, I 
correct, I might be wrong, uh, 176 troops, troopers um, on the ground um, who were, were brought in either on helicopter or uh, parachuted in, and that they were drawn from the entire SAS uh, and three commando and two commando. So it was an RLI SAS operation. Um, it was to take out the base camp at Chamoyo, which was a fairly massive operation, probably in excess of 10,000 people, over a distance of, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 100 square miles, um, the, the, the area of the camp. And the, the, the deal was that the, the SAS would box in the one side, three commander, another side, two commander, another side, and uh, Alouette K cars with 20 mils would cover the fourth side. Um, the, the operation was to be, uh, would start uh, when all the, the guerrillas were on parade in the morning at 8 o'clock, uh, and the Air Force um, hunters and Canberras and K cars went in so, uh, to, to start off the operation. And then came the, the, the Dakotas, the, 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 the Paradax, um, to drop the troops and the helicopters to bring in the troops to box off the guerrillas. And that, that was a, a very successful operation. I think the Rhodesians only lost um, two killed. Um, both, I think, were SAS guys and several, several, several wounded, um, quite a few wounded, actually, and a lot by friendly fire. Um, but uh, enemy casualties were that you could that, that they never knew exactly what the sort of enemy casualties were and how many died later or um, that sort of thing. But probably, I think officially they, they claimed the Rhodesians claimed about two thousand uh, killed, um, probably nearer four thousand, I'd say. So that was regarded as the blueprint for. Um, cross-border operations. Wow, you know, highly successful. And now that you are uh, you're airborne qualified, so in the unit is, uh, can you talk to us about you know doing combat jumps? Uh, what that was like for you guys? Yeah, again, um, a lot of it was um, with the air force as well. It was trial and error. I mean, it never really been done before. Um, you know, the only people who'd done parachuting um, uh, in, in a sort of operational um, environment were the SAS. Um, <clears throat> anyway, they thought, well, they'll train us up. And um, what's a good height to drop drop you? So we went, we did our training at um, New Serum, which was the Air Force uh, flight training school in Salisbury. We did our nine practice uh, training jumps with American, Australian, and British uh, instructors, parachute instructors. Um, and then we got our wings, and we were into action once we got to the Fire Force base almost immediately. Uh, <clears throat> we, the, the Dakota, the, the um, it was a DC-3, or you, you guys call it a C-47, um, that we used. Uh, was supposed to take 24 um, paratroopers, but kitted up with all your 
gear and your MAG machine guns and, and, and parachute, it was just too much. So we eventually reduced to 20 and eventually 16. So two sticks of eight each side of, of, the, of, the, of the Dakota. Uh, and at the time, the, 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 the KCAR commander, the major in the, in the KCAR would position his, would position the Dakota um, until he identified a drop zone or until he identified where he wanted the sweep, light, sweep line to move in from. And essentially the, 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 the paratroopers became the sweep line mm -hmm. um, and they would sweep towards the stops who um, had been brought in by uh, G-cars. Um, or he might, he might decide to drop all 20 or 16 in one stick or position eight over there and another 12 there, for example. Um, and it was done at a height of uh, 500 feet. I was going to ask uh, you how high. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a fast drop. Uh, there's like it, no point to packing a yeah, reserve. No, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't <laughs> no. need a reserve because... No, yeah. no, no, no. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. And I mean, 500 feet was, was generous. I mean, more often than not, it was well below 500 feet. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly... I mean, certainly sub 400 feet uh, on several occasions. And every jump, there were casualties, every jump, um, because the, the, there were very few drop zones. Um, you know, it was bush, thick bush. Yeah. So, yeah, we would be fortunate if there was a plowed field or agricultural land where it was a little bit, a bit of a drop zone. But if there was a wind, um, I mean, you'd be, be taken into the rocks and trees and, yeah. <coughs> We had a lot of casualties. Yeah, you don't have you don't have any time to steer anywhere either, right? No, I mean, uh, no. you wouldn't have much time between your opening shock and and hitting the ground. No, none, none. That's no. crazy. I mean, I think I, th I think the the lowest recorded, uh, and I might be wrong, was just over three hundred feet. Um, and I mean, there were broken legs. I think there was one death, and that was with the Rhodesian African Rifles in the Zambezi Valley. Yeah, that was 300 feet. I mean, that's no, that's like the Russians, you know, in World War II, throwing them off the wing. Yeah. What were yeah. Uh, what were some of the hairier jumps and the hairier combat jumps that that you were on yourself that you can recall? Uh, <clears throat> I think um, when we the, the one raid we did into it was my last operational jump. It was in October 1978. Uh, we were, were doing a raid into Zambia. Um, it was Operation... Anyway, it became known as the Green Leader Raid. It was when uh, the Air Force basically... I remember. 
Yeah, I held held Lusaka Airport hostage and said, you, you know, you're not allowed to, no planes are allowed to take off because we're busy. Um, we control the airspace at the moment. And that was Green Leader in his, uh, you know, that's what the raid became known as. Um, uh, it was a massive operation. There were three camps hit, not simultaneously, because the Rhodesians didn't have enough aircraft to do that. So the Air Force went in first and hit FC Camp to south side of Saka. Then the SAS went into Makushi, which was quite far north in Zambia, you know, a good couple of hundred miles. They hit that camp, and then the RLI went and hit a camp called CGT2 on the Great East Road, east of Lusaka. And um, I happened to be, just by accident, um, I was in the first Dakota, the first um, C-47, DC-3, and I was the first man out the door. So uh, I thought, that's it, I'm, I'm going to die. I mean, there's no way that I'm going to survive this. Um, as it was, fortuitously for me, um, the, the Bush Telegraph had worked extremely efficiently. And by the time we got to our camp, uh, the, the, our target, most of the guerrillas, and there were a lot of them, I mean, like 5,000 of them, they, a lot of, they had all bombshell that fled. Not all of them. Um, there were still a few hardcore core ones in their gun emplacements manning the 14.5s and 12.7s, uh, which they were using in a ground roll, uh, which we had to deal with. But yeah, I remember that, uh, that one, um, and it was a perfect jump. Um, it was a stand-up. Uh, there was no wind, um, but Zambia has these massive, massive trees. Um, you know, being near the equator, everything grows bigger and faster and quicker. And they had these massive trees, like several hundred feet high. And our guys were getting hooked up <laughs> in them and being shot at by, um, oh my God, you know, guy, the 12.7s down below. It's, it's very difficult, apparently, to, to hit a paratrooper. But, um, yeah, there, there was a few, a, a bit of a nervous time there where I saw all these guys sort of, and then they've got to extricate themselves up from this tree, <laughs> mile, miles up, and then come scrambling down like a monkey, with, you know, with his 9 mil pistol, shooting at the guys with the 12.7. So that, yeah, that was a bit hairy. But, uh, but, but it generally, far force jumps were hard and fast. And, um, uh, you know, apart from damaging yourself, you know, breaking your ankle or your leg or something, um, it was the damage that it would do to your your gear, your rifle. Um, so, I mean, many is a time where your machine gun, your MAG ended up with the barrel sort of a foot down in the ground. And, our, you know, we lost a, lost a lot of weapons and a lot of stuff like that. Uh, and, and, you know, apart from the obstacles like trees and rocks, um, I think the best one was uh, also an American guy, a guy called Hugh McCall. He was killed, killed in action. Um, he was a very good friend of mine, um, and he jumped out, and we were over a, a village, or a crawl, as we called it, and um, he happened to land astride a plow, a steel plow, and he went in at speed, and he landed, straddled this 
bloody plow. And um, we thought it was quite funny, um, but no, he didn't. And um, you know, he was in considerable pain for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah so it was yeah, parachuting. And um, we had one pilot who uh, was a highly excitable um, Mauritian, actually, French extraction. Um, and we called him the Stuka pilot because I don't know what the technique is, but, you know, when, it, when, when an airplane is flying along disgorging its troops, the pilot has to adjust um, his altitude mm-hmm. to, to maintain 500 feet. And this guy would always over-adjust and end up uh, going down. So if you were the last guy out of the plane, you, you were going out at 400 feet for sure. So whenever we knew he was a pilot, we would, yeah, we weren't too happy about that. But yeah, I heard lots of stories um, parachuting. But yeah, because of, because of the, um, uh, we were used so often, um, I mean, some guys, stories of some guys, I mean, I, I, I jumped into two contacts a day sometimes, not often, but and there were one guy who jumped in three contacts in one day, three operational jumps in a day. So it didn't take long before we built up our operational tally, operational jumps tally, and I think the record in the Rhodesian Light Infantry was uh, a guy, I think he had 86 operational jumps, which... As far as I know, it's a world record. I mean, no one can ever beat 86 off how, how many did you have by the end? I, uh, I had about 20, I think. Um, but I was quite clever. I, I used to sneak out and manage to get onto helicopter. Uh, you know, being, being quite senior in my troop, I always managed to put myself onto... Um, helicopters as opposed to parachuting. Was during this time uh, was uh, were were the the force Zipra in uh, uh, Zanu right or Zanu. Zanlu? Zanlu. Were, did I know that they sort of I know they had this mutual goal or superficial goal, but did they also fight because of different ideologies, yeah. different backing? Absolutely, yeah, they did. Um, and there were several cases of um, the, there was really a race between between the two factions. Zipra, which was the uh, Soviet-trained, um, essentially Matabili tribe, um, if that means anything to you, um, Zulu extraction mm-hmm. um, tribe, who came from the western part of the country. Um, they. Uh, they were run by Joshua and Koma, who was the head honcho. And then you had the Zanla, Zimbabwe African National Liberation Army, which was Mugabe's crowd, who were essentially Shona, who were the majority tribe in, in, in the country. And the race was on between them to occupy the hinterland of, of, of Rhodesia as quickly as possible. Uh, so... I mean, we didn't know this half the time. We were sort of clueless what was going on. Uh, but there were, there were a fair amount of contacts 
inside the country when they when they eventually clashed uh, Zana, uh, Zandler and, and Zipra. Yeah, there was no love lost there. Yeah. So can you tell us about some of your operational deployments going into uh, Matoko? Matoko. Yeah. Um, Matoko was uh, an area near Mount Darwin, which was um, up up on the north eastern part of Rhodesia, on the border with um, uh, Mozambique. Um, a big uh, tribal trust area and also a big white farming area. Um, by 1977, I think, the white farming area had been totally cleared out. There was not one white farmer left um, in the area. Uh, Zandler controlled Matoka, <clears throat> Sydney at night. Um, and so it was a a hotbed. It was also a fairly important infiltration route uh, from Mozambique and indirectly from Tanzania, which is where uh, Zana also had a lot of base camps. Um, <clears throat> and we we came. Uh, there's a, a big river that uh, that that flows from near Salisbury or Harare, as it is now, called the Missouri River, that flows into the Zambezi through. Matoko into the Tet province in Mozambique, into the Zambezi. And it was a ma major infiltration route. And um, we got called out <coughs> to a place called Nyamapanda, which was on the border um, with Mozambique. And like a lot of these operations, you ended up sitting around. Yeah, I mean, um, you didn't know what was going on. You know, hurry up and wait, normal army. Um, and we were waiting and we were waiting. And then the SAS arrived um, in a Dakota and they all got out and went and sat under the wing of the airplane and they waited around. And we thought nothing's happening. Um, and we waited for probably about three hours just doing nothing. Um, and then suddenly you hear over the radio out the blue, stop one, stop one, prepare for uplift. And you suddenly hear a, tuk -tuk 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 -tuk, a bird coming in. Jeez, you've got to jump around and get ready. And um, that picked up um, a group of, I might be wrong, maybe 200 guerrillas had infiltrated the country um, along the Missouri River. And that, that spotted them. The Air Force had gone in and um, bombed them. And then they had bombshelled into groups of 30 or 40 so, but it was over a massive kind of uh, a battlefield. So it was almost impossible to, to pin them down. Um, we did, we managed to ha ha have contact. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think we got about three or four. Yeah, so, you know, those, those sort of things. It, and I realized then, you know, out of the 200 that had infiltrated the country, country we possibly accounted for altogether maybe 20 so you know the 180 and run had escaped and we're, we're in the country now and the, this is what we're up against it, it was just sheer numbers that, that they were impossible to deal with those kind of numbers as we get into 1979 the war has progressed the enemy is getting bolder also, I get the sense from your book and some of the other books I've read that the troopies were also getting, you know, kind of shell-shocked 
and uh, in, in some cases pretty ruthless from all of the combat experience and some of the horrible things they'd seen on the battlefield. Do you want to do you want to walk us in from your perspective about what that was like getting into some of those final battles of the war? Yeah, um, well, for me, uh, I mean, my time um, was up in February '79 was when my contract would finish. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it was always quite a nervous time, and I'm sure it's the same in in in, in any army that in your last few weeks or couple of weeks of your time of your contract that it's, it's always a, you worried, I mean, am I going to make it, you know? And, um, it was very much the case case with me. Uh, I, I kind of knew that, um, I tempted fate just that little bit too much. And, uh, I knew that it was just a matter of time before I, um, before something happened. Um, I mean, I'd had uh, tell a real war story, as we call them. I mean, I'd been in one contact where it happened in, in, in early January 79. And, um, yeah, that was was a, was a quite a hectic contact. I think I killed six that, that one day. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a machine gunner. Um, uh, I'd, I'd given up commanding a stick because... I actually quite like carrying a machine gun because it's quite a powerful weapon. And Hugh McCall, uh, the American, was our stick leader. And then um, the other two troopers was a guy called Kevin Grace, who was a Rhodesian, and another guy called Bob Smith, who was American from Georgia. So two Americans, two Rhodesians in the stick. And we went into this one village. uh, uh, We were quite prosperous by by African standards. Um, and it was the village, like a lot of the villages of the cross, with two long lines of huts. And in the middle was a sort of communal area where they sat outside and ate and cooked and things like that in good weather. <clears throat> and um, the very simple plan, Hugh McCall and Bob Smith would go around the right-hand side of the, the, the line of huts and um, Kevin and I would go on the left-hand side, and we'd sort of, uh, sort of envelop it like that, and clear the crawl, basically. Um, so I had no idea where um, McCall and Smith were. We lost, we lost them, visually. Um, I knew vaguely where they were. And as we stepped into the crawl, uh, between the two lines of huts, uh, the guerrillas opened up on me and Kevin. I mean, I, I don't know how we went hit. Absolute insane, just volley of fire. Um, really, and yeah, I, I just, I didn't think I would make it. And I felt like it was uh, in a box that with, with rounds just everywhere around me. And I, I thought it's just time before I'm hit. Anyway, there was a little, uh, what we call it, like a grain storage bin. On stilts, and that was the only cover available. These little thin sticks of, of, of poles. So Kevin and I dive behind them, um, uh, with the, with the, the bullets just following us. Um, I, I don't know how we went hit. I really don't. And then suddenly, all quiet, nothing. Um, and I heard McCall, Hugh McCall, shouting, "Chris, what's going on? You okay? You okay?" I said, "Yeah, uh, I think so." Um, and it was quiet, it was just dust and smoke and that. And then 
suddenly to uh, to my right, near where McCall and and and, and Smith were, I saw these figures um, scurrying away through the mango mango trees. Uh, about about four of them, four or five of them, and clearly gorillas. They were all armed. Um, so I sort of um, in my sort of stunned state, still sitting on my butt, with, um, you know, sort of squatting, um, my machine gun was um, on its bipods. And so I didn't bring it in the shoulder or anything. I just, just sat it on the ground and, and opened fire. I had a belt of 100 rounds, which I always had as the first belt. And I could see the fall of shot from my rounds going through the the dry leaves of the uh, mango plantation chasing these guys. So I adjusted the elevation, the fraction, and the, the bullets just followed these guys. It was amazing. It was like in the movies, you know, and all four of them uh, tumbled. I, I didn't know what happened, but they, they fell. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I shouted to Hugh, they're there, they're near you, you better sort of jump around and, and get cracking in case they're still alive or, or the others there. Um, Kevin and I then went over and joined them. We did a sweep and we found, found them, four of them. Um, one was still alive. He'd fallen into an ant bear hole. Um, then we pulled him out and um, <coughs> he, was, he was dispatched, um, I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Not by me, but um, yeah, we were we were told get rid of them, uh, don't keep them. Um, so we then went back into the village, and there were more. There were more hiding in the huts. So it was just the the, the, the this just battle that just ensued for 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 a long, long time. They're trying to trying to winkle these guys. They're taking refuge in a hut. Mm -hmm. in the huts and you had to go into the hut and drag them out or kill them or and there were women and children in the huts too um we weren't allowed to burn the huts we weren't allowed to burn them out because we wanted to capture wanted to capture them if possible if they were um, important um commanders or detachment commanders or uh documents or things like that uh, <coughs> yeah so um I mean, Bob Smith, that was his job uh, as a rifleman, as a trooper. He would have to go into each hut. And I mean, the one hut he, he stepped into, as he stepped into an AK, came up, took a pot shot at him from point blank, missed him. I don't know how. Um, yeah, so that, that raged for a while. Um, I, I don't know how more women and children weren't killed. Um, they, not many were killed, fortunately. Um, and then we swept down to the river line where we knew a whole lot more had escaped and we had another contact and we managed to shoot some more i got got a couple more but <coughs> at the end of it all we were told to burn the kraal burn the village which we did um and there were these i just remember these these women and children just just absolutely uh stunned absolutely stunned just sitting in in a in a big group while we burned their their homes and um they were too scared to move from the flames 
and, and I went over to them. I said, get out of here, move, 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 go. And so they did. And then we got on the helicopters and went, went home, you know. Um, so that was that night when I, when I, when I got back to the camp, um, I took off my webbing and, you know, as one does and replenish your ammunition and fill up your water bottles and radio batteries and, you know, get ready for the next day. And, um, I had like five or six bullet holes in my webbing. Um, I had one through my radio battery and the one pouch on and another through uh, a water bottle on the one side and then the other side. So I had like three or four, uh, two or three bullet holes on either side in my webbing. So, I mean, I must have come within millimeters, inches of, of being hit. Um, so, yeah, uh, someone was watching me that day. Yeah. That, that was about the point where you had decided maybe I've had enough. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But no, I mean, someone's trying to tell me something here. And um, so that was my last major contact. And that was the 5th of, 5th of January, 1979. Now, I didn't see much action after that. Well, things were changing politically, too, by like 1979, 1980, right? Like what was happening, yeah. what was going on uh, in, in Rhodesia itself? Yeah, politically... Um, There'd been um, interventions by uh, the British Foreign Secretary, by Kissinger, uh, to, to try and broker some sort of peace deal, uh, some sort of agreement <coughs> with all the, all the warring factions. Um, but it, it never came to much. So, so what Ian Smith, um, the Prime Minister, did was really broker a peace agreement with local um, locally based politi black political parties, um, which we called an internal settlement, which was never recognized um, internationally. Um, you know, Mugabe was regarded as the leader of, of ZANU, and Nkoma was regarded as the leader of ZAPU, Zipra and Zanla, um, the, the armed wings. Uh, they were never involved in, in, in the... Um, uh, in any kind of negotiated settlement. And they knew that, that um, they didn't have to be, um, that, that ultimately they would take power uh, through the barrel of a gun, as they called it. Um, so they didn't need to be involved in any political settlement. But in, in the middle of um, June, uh, the middle of 1979, the country changed politically. It became uh, mishmash. It became Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. And Bishop Muzarewa became the prime minister and Ian Smith was like given some sort of defense portfolio or something like that. So, but it was effectively the same. Um, it was still, still the whites controlling the country. Now, that, that all changed in um, December 79 when there was a negotiated peace agreement. Peace talks in London uh, with everyone around the table, um, Nkoma, Mugabe, Smith, Muzarewa, all of them. And it was agreed there would be a ceasefire and that uh, elections uh, would take place uh, in, uh, in early 79 uh, with a view to independence in April 
1980. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's when Mugabe won a well, landslide, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, do, you, do you know why, uh, like, other countries wouldn't recognize the internal agreement? Did they think that Smith wasn't giving enough concessions? Because obviously, you know, Mugabe and... and uh, um, Please help me. Uh, the, the two, the other two, yeah, they, they weren't, they weren't like good organizations. You know, they they were terrorizing the villagers. They were doing a lot of things. So yeah. why did why didn't people outside of the country, other governments, recognize that internal agreement? That's a very good question. Uh, some did. Um, okay. Surprisingly enough. Um, but uh, the world basically knew that Mugabe, um, uh, he had the majority and uh, of support. And so they, they refused to recognize um, any of the smaller internal parties. Uh, and, and Mugabe's propaganda machine was um, first class. It really yeah. was. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Rhodesians, when it came to propaganda, were hopeless, absolutely hopeless. Um, yeah, so I mean, Mugabe had pretty well everyone in his pocket, um, and and he was even he was Thatcher's um, man. He was the British man. Um, that's who they wanted. Yeah, yeah. There's so much of a like a huge backstory with Lord Carrington, and although there were oh. weird weird things that happened in the the final days, uh, final years yeah. of Rhodesia. Um, but you have also written several other books, Chris, about what happened after for you after the war. And I, I regret to say, I, I have your your novel actually sitting on my bookshelf, and I haven't read it yet. And I have to read your other your other books. Could you tell us about that that experience after the war and, and what that was like for you, and, and kind of what happened? Okay, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, my story is pretty well a universal story um, of what it was like uh, trying to decompress from, from a war situation. Um, I, I mean, you, you guys you guys have it uh, with all the suicides and, and, and guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, that sort of thing. And um, I've just, just read a book on, on about a guy from Iraq, American guy, and, and he, his description was the it becomes the battle in the, the over the kitchen table as he called it, uh, which I thought was quite a good description of of trying to assimilate back into civilian life. And now, now suddenly your life, you know, you've, you 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 you're out the military, or you know, you, you know, you've come home, you've done your time, you've done your tour, and now what? You know, you you you've. Um, there's very little uh, kind of assistance to, to help you reintegrate into society. Okay, they try and get you to go on various, you know, courses or degrees or things like that, to back to school. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, my, my, my the typical story of just, I just could not um, adapt or integrate back into society for for a hundred different reasons. And I think everyone's story is different, but... Um, they're all the same at the same time. Um, and although I never considered suicide, I had lots of my mates, uh, comrades who did, um, mm -hmm. lots of them. I mean, and I think it's a, a truism that um, certainly in, in our little war that uh, we lost more people 
after the war than during, yeah. um, which I think is what happened with, with the Americans and, and the Brits in, in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so it, it, I, I just really struggled to, 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 to get back. And um, it, you know, it, it, it was a long journey. It really was um, the, the whole thing, drink and drugs and you know, not, not a happy, happy situation. It took a long, long time. Uh, <coughs> you know, with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which uh, some people have it, some don't, um, uh, different different levels of it as well. And um, I think they say that it, it can take up to 30 years to manifest itself mm -hmm. or to, to really come to really hit you mm -hmm. and certainly that was my case um i think there's a sort of the immediate impact of of, of straight after a war situation of of, of just wildness madness drinking mm -hmm. drugs uh, you know um, that that goes away and then the actual ptsd sneaks up when, when you have to think about it, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be very insidious, and in yeah. it manifests without yeah. you even really knowing that's what's going on. Exactly, exactly. And you know, it's easy to blame a lot of of your behaviour on it. Um, yeah, but it's it's a it's a true thing, and um, uh, yeah, like I said, it affects everybody differently. Um, some more than others. Um, I got it pretty bad, I think. Um, and, and you know, the, like a lot of those nightmares, um, that they they're still there. They'll never go away. Uh -huh. uh, but it's it's learning to to live with that. And um, you know, basically, I'm 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 a good guy who did bad things. I'm not a bad person. Um, or I did some things that that could be considered um, uh, immoral. Right. In other words, yeah. So uh, yeah. It, 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 it was hard. It was very hard. Um, but phew, you got a choice, you know? Yeah. Now, yeah, no. out of curiosity, I, I, you know, like, I feel like your experience, like the Rhodesian experience is very different than, say, the Americans, the Brits, you know, these other people, because I, our wartime experience may be similar in, or, or that post-traumatic. But we go back to a culture that is familiar, even if we don't feel a part of it, where you were living in a country that was changing, the culture around you was changing, uh, and you had been a part of trying, to, I don't want to say trying to fight that change, but trying to stop somebody like Mugabe from taking over, or, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and then you see, you know, these things start to happen in your country that, you know, Mugabe and these fear campaigns, how... How did that affect you? How how long did you stay in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe? You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I always said that um, you know we um, uh, we won all the battles, but we lost the war. And not only did we lose the war, but we lost our country. Um, and when I say we lost our country, uh, the whites just evaporated. Uh, in 1980, uh, there was just this mass exodus, um, and very few whites were left. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, there were whites left, obviously, and they still are. But <coughs> it was—I was absolutely lost. Um, I had no idea 
um, what I was doing there. I, I had no idea whether I wanted to stay in, in Zimbabwe. Um, I could see what was going on in terms of all the, um, you know, the war carried on, um, 1982-83 between Zanla and Zipra, and then what they called the, the Gukuru Hundi, Hundi where um, Mugabe sent uh, his North Korean goons uh, to go and basically embark on a campaign of genocide in Matabili land against, against the Matabili land people. Um, and, and took out of all, all the comas um, armored columns coming across from Zambia. And, and the, the irony is that all the pilots in the, the Zimbabwe Air Force who did that were all Rhodesian pilots um, who were, were staying on finishing their Air Force contracts. Um, now. And the troops who took out Nkomo's um, Zipra columns were either Rhodesian African rifles who'd now been rebadged as something else, and a lot of ex RLR guys. So, I mean, it was a bizarre situation, and um, it never sat right with me. Excuse <coughs> me. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Mugabe, to, to start with, he was all pragmatism and he was hailed as a a man of peace and a man who reconciliation um, and he was to start with um, until things happened and started going wrong um, but I, I never never felt it was home never never uh, I stayed on for 15 years after after um, independence um, uh, simply because of family uh, stayed on there, but I, I went through, I don't know how many jobs I'd been through, uh, lots, you know, 10 different type jobs, um, going through my whole roller coaster of substance abuse, and um, no, it was just, a, just not a happy time, yeah. Uh, so I, I want to ask sort of an insensitive question, but I think that other people watching this and listening to it might have the same question, so I want to ask it. Um, sure. When you say that sort of whites left, do you do you feel that like there were sore losers, kind of these racists who didn't want to see a black government and were mad that whites were no longer in power? Was it because there were threats against white people? Was it a combination of these things? Like what sort of what was going on with the immigration immigration at that point? Uh, <clears throat> I think. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, truth in what you're saying. A lot of a lot of whites were racist. Um, they had a deep fear of Mugabe, um, the same way the whites had fled from the Congo, um, and that they, they saw that another Congo-type scenario was going to happen, and so they fled literally um, in the, in their thousands um, to South Africa, Australia, UK, America, wherever, uh, all over the world. Um, yeah, and a lot of those people who who left, um, a lot of people left in in 1980 and and immediately after independence, they they went to places like Australia, for example, and they're still living in that um, that hot time warp that uh, of, of 1980. That attitudes times have not changed for them, um, whereas. But I can't say that about everybody. Sure. Yeah. And there was a legitimate yeah. fear from Mugabe. It wasn't just, 
it, it wasn't just people who were racist who like didn't want to see blacks yeah. in the country, but it was the person. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I still found it difficult to believe that even in <coughs> excuse me, 1979, the majority of whites still supported Ian Smith. I mean, surely the writing was on the wall that what this guy had been doing for the last 15 years was taking the country down this path of just sort of self-destruction. But the, the, the whites supported him. Um, I think a, a lot of it was, was also um, personal. Um, I mean, people were starting to, to, to leave. There was a mass exodus from about 1978, 79, the floodgates opened and people were just leaving. Uh, I think they were just struggling with the military service, um, struggling with the whole war situation. Um, I mean, if you were a, a male civilian of military um, serving age, you would spend, uh, as a civilian, you would spend six weeks in the army, six weeks as a civilian. So it was, it was called six weeks in, six weeks out. And um, you, you, you couldn't live like that, you know. The, right. Yeah, you know how how do you get a job on that sort of sort of basis? Right. Yeah, and so a lot of them left because of that. Your yeah. post military life, uh, you described it in Survival Course and Out of Action, are the two books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically the same book. I just changed the title, and um, it originally came out as Survival Course, and then then I changed it. I don't know. Okay, so so out yeah. out of action is the book that I need to go order now. Well, there's a new one now called uh, it's now called Survival Course again. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, and it, it's completely updated and, and revisited. Yeah, and that covers the period from when I finished with the Rhodesian Light Infantry and up till almost to to date. Yeah. Okay. But it covers the the last eighteen months of the war. Uh, when I served with um, uh, police part two, police anti-terrorist unit, as a reservist a stick leader there. So yeah, the war didn't finish for me. Yeah, um, I was civilian now. Yeah. And yeah. your uh, your your novel that's sitting on my shelf uh, is it Purple Vortex? I've ch again rewritten that, and I've called it. <laughs> um, the, the reason these things have gone through so many iterations is I'm never really happy with what the publishers <laughs> did with them. So I rewrote them and eventually self-published them. But it, it's a novel called, I've, I've called it Deslocado Redemption. Okay. Oh, that's, it, yeah. Yeah. Deslocado. Deslocado is Portuguese for displaced. Okay. Effectively, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm having this conversation with you, I'm excited to go back and, and read these books that I, I haven't caught up on. And of course, what we've been talking about here today is Fire Force by our guest, Chris Cox. I hope you guys will check it out. And your cover from Amazon may lo not look like this is an older edition. So, uh, oh yeah, Chris, do you have a current yeah. edition? That's the new edition. That's awesome. the new edition. Yeah. Um, so we have some uh, questions from one of our uh, Patreon uh, subscribers. Um, yes. Were you ever tempted to go to the South African military after 1980, uh, since so many members of the RLI did go there? Uh, yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Um, no, I wasn't. Um, 
as I say, I, I had sort of certain sort of family obligations. Um, I'd got married when I was 20, I mean, in the RLI, uh, so, and, and had children. I had my son, first child, when I was 21. Wow. So I had other kind of obligations, but I was quite keen on pursuing a military career, and I'd actually um, made um, advances to the uh, Foreign Legion. Okay. Um, I was going to go there, but then it never happened. Yeah. A, a lot of guys went and joined the um, British Army. Uh, a lot of the Americans went back to, to the American Army, uh, various units there, and did well. Some of them did really, really well. Um, and ditto with the, a lot of the guys who went back to the British Army. Um, they rose to, yeah, they did well. Yeah, Rhodesia was one of those interesting places where it had a professional force and a lot of those members were former soldiers from other countries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, at one time with the Rhodesian Light Infantry, because of our shortage of manpower, I mean, we actively, I, I believe, used to advertise in in the States and Soldier of Fortune and various magazines like this and um, in the Telegraph newspaper in the UK and this sort of thing. So we had uh, yeah, a fairly large complement of um, foreigners, as we called them, um, Americans, Brits, Canadians, Aussies, Kiwis, um, South Africans, obviously. Um, and I mean, at one stage, the Rhodesian Light Infantry had uh, 27 different nationalities serving. Um, yeah, so a real kind of mishmash, almost like a little mini foreign legion in itself. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, he says, uh, any book, documentary, or other recommendations, uh, recommendations for learning about the conflict from the other side, from the perspective of the ordinary combatants and not the politicians? That's also a very good question. Um, <clears throat> there's not been a lot of literature from Zanla or Zipra. Um, I did edit a book once um, by a guy called uh, Agrippa Mutambara, who was a fairly senior Zanla guy. In fact, he was at Shimoya uh, when we attacked. Um, he was one of the senior commanders at Shimoya. Um, his book is worth a read, um, certainly from a, a sort of senior Zandler perspective. Um, he ended up fairly senior with uh, in Ethiopia. Um, but yeah, he, he saw action uh, at Shamoya. At he was one of the guys who organized the defense there. Um, Agrippa Mutambara, I'm trying to think what the name of the book is. Uh, anyway, his name is Mutambara. Pretty well as it sounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are not that many around. Um, uh, I don't know why. Um, I mean, I've, it's something I've encouraged. I'm actually quite interested to to read um, uh, combat from their perspective. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just speculating, but I imagine they didn't have exactly a free press in Zimbabwe after the war. And also the, the life expectancy in Zimbabwe is was like thirty. Yeah. For, for the black yeah. population, uh, I, yeah. I mean, a lot of them they're just not around. Yeah, they're not. Um, yeah. 
I mean, there, there are a few accounts, but written more from the senior uh, mm-hmm. the, the sort of generals right. and the senior politicians. Right. Uh, some some really good 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 accounts and 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 good books, but very little, almost nothing, sort of on my level, as I call it, sort of. A trooper uh, uh, memoirs, nothing, very little. Being that the government, Zanel sort of became the government and, you know, and the troops and whatnot, did you have a chance to talk to any of these men who had been on the other side? Because now you're brushing shoulders with them in the streets, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did. Um, I had quite an interesting. episode once um, I was picked up I was flying back from South Africa this would have been in about 80 89 about nine or ten years after the end of the war and uh, I was um, I was searched coming back from South Africa I was searched at the airport and the guy who was doing the searching uh, was a member of the Central Intelligence Organization they didn't just have customs officers um, working at the airport. They had, you know, they had special branch type people there as well. And um, we got chatting, and um, he turned out uh, had been a um, Zandler combatant, uh, had fought for Zandler. Um, he was now a captain in the Zimbabwean army. Um, <clears throat> And he said, do you want to come and meet my boss? Um, he was also a Zandler combatant who was now a major. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, yeah, sure. So I, I met them and I, they were both based at the Rhodesian Light Infantry Barracks. They were in what the RLI became, which was, um, I think it, be, it was called One Commando Battalion. Uh, effectively the same role as the Rhodesian Light Infantry. And they said, well, <clears throat> come to the officer's mess. We'll buy you a drink. Um, the first time I ever been to the officer's mess. Um, so I went around there uh, to the officer's mess, went through the gates, no problem, got signed in and saluted and treated like um, royalty. Uh, because here I was, uh, a veteran RLI guy visiting the new RLI. Yeah. And I went went into the, the officer's mess and had a drink. And they were both, um, yeah, we got on like a house on fire, good guys. And they were upset. They were sad that um, all the RLI memorabilia and the colors and everything had been taken away. There's yeah. nothing left. There's nothing left at all. Um, even the statue of the, there was a statue of a trooper in the, we called it the Holy Ground in the middle of the barrack, uh, the middle of the barracks. That had been taken down to South Africa. And so the whole place had been absolutely stripped. There was nothing there to suggest that there'd been an, a, a, a Rhodesian light infantry there. Um, and even in the officers' mess, where all the swords and the, the banners and, and the various plaques and all that were, were hanging on the wall, there, there, nothing there, nothing. And they, they, regarded um, the RLI as effectively the f- forerunner. Right. So they believed. So surreal. Yeah, it was kind of surreal. They believed that we were 
we spawned one commander battalion. Right. And they said, if you can get this stuff back to us here, we will look after it, you know, and um, no, no chance of that happening. But I mean, I thought it would have been fantastic if we could yeah. get stuff back to them. Yeah. And at the time, there were uh, American instructors and British instructors on the parade ground. I could see them up through the officers' mess training, training all the troops there. So very surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, last question, uh, did you see any Cubans or Russians during the war? And we mentioned Chinese, but we'll say Chinese. Like, what What would be the, uh, if you guys captured them or killed them, what were the procedures for Cubans, Russians, Chinese, uh, you know, North yeah. Koreans? Yeah. Um, I don't, I think, I think the Rhodesians did capture some Chinese. Um, they would have been quietly returned. To China, um, <clears throat> I certainly know the South Africans in their war. They captured quite a few Russians in Angola, um, and they were all involved in prisoner exchanges. But um, yeah, they would have been treated normally, normal prisoners of war. Um, we did not mistreat generally our prisoners of war. We, there was no torture or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so they would have been treated quite normally. Yeah, yeah. Be quite interesting. I mean, um, uh, I personally never came across any, but we heard stories of. I mean, like at Chamoya, there were lots of Cubans, but they obviously managed to get the first train out of town and they, they got away. But uh, <clears throat> uh, I mean, even today, there's a um, quite a. Uh, it's mainly to do with the Russian-South uh, African conflict in Angola um, in the 80s. And 90s, um, I mean, there's some fairly. It's a whole different, different war, different story. But um, there's today, there's a Russian-South African military association, um, and uh, all the, all these Russians who fought in Angola against the South Africans, they all come out to Angola and they visit the battlefields with the South Africans, and you know, Very tell war stories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Jim, Jim Sheenberger, I'm not sure if you know who, he says hello. And he says, Oh, thank you. He says he's in North Carolina if you're ever there. Hi, Jim. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Lovely to hear from him. And yeah. thank you, thank Izzy. You. Yeah, and thank you, Izzy. We really, really appreciate your donation. Chris, as, uh, as we wrap up here tonight, is there anything that I failed to ask or failed to cover? Anything you really would like to get out there? No, not, not really. I'm, I'm just sort of. Um, you know, at the end of end of our war, uh, we kind of felt, what was it all for? And I mean, I think everyone feels that after any war. And uh, we felt that in many respects, we had failed. Um, we had failed as, as, as soldiers. Um, we'd fought the good fight, but we'd, we'd been beaten by Andrew Young and Kissinger and Callahan and all these international politicians. Um, and I remember when I, I, I wrote Fire Force, my book, in I wrote the first draft in 1987. So it was still quite fresh. I mean, it was only seven years old. Uh, and I banged it out in an old typewriter with lots of tippics. And um, I didn't set out to write a book. What I set out to do was to write... Um, 
a bunch of stories of, of some of the more memorable um, actions or contacts or operations that I was involved with, just for my own um, for my own erudition, basically, so for, for me. Um, but at the end of it, I thought, well, hey, maybe, maybe there's a book in here. I don't know. You know? So I had this manuscript, um, hard copy, no photocopy at all, and I sent it off to a publisher uh, in England. I sent it off to publishers all over the place. And I, um, <coughs> I sent it off to the main military publisher in, in the UK. And I got this note back, a, bris a brusque little note, handwritten note from the publisher. Uh, this was of no interest to us. Um, no one basically gives a toss about Rhodesia, you know, the silly little war. We're not interested. And I just thought, I can't believe that, you know. I mean, really, we, we went for that for just as like a little mini footnote in history. I mean, and it was absolutely just gutted me. It really did. And, and it, you know, being white from Southern Africa at that time, um, it was not a good thing. You, you were pretty well a pariah. And um, whether you were or you're not, you were regarded as internationally as a racist, mm -hmm. basically, and um, which a lot of us weren't. Um, a lot of us were, but a lot of us weren't. And um, that, to me, was probably the the bottom of the barrel, as far as I, I, I could, at the, at the time. And I just thought, what is it all for? What for? You know, and, and I'm sure everybody goes through that. And um, it's only now, uh, well, I say now, but in the last 20 years, because my book first, it was eventually published by... Gallagher publishes in South Africa in 1989. So it's the first edition. So um, it's been out for over 30 years. It's been in print you know, through various editions. Um, and since then, I've slowly, slowly started getting correspondence uh, from all over the world and um, from Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this guy's bought my book and he's at Bagram or whatever. And uh, it's just absolutely fantastic how the sort of um, military community has sort of reached out. And um, they came, they will come back to me and they said, it did matter, you know? Yeah. Absolutely, it did matter. Um, you know, so good guys. And I mean, I've made. Uh, email friendships that, that endure to this day with people I've never met. Um, lots of Americans and, and Brits um, from all over the world, and, you know, servicemen. Um, and it's, it's, it's wonderful that um, the sort of military type uh, community almost. So, it's, uh, it, it's, really, it's really interesting, Chris. I, uh, you're, you're right. For a long time, this conflict was not spoken about here in the Western world for political reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and still to this day, it's controversial. There were people who were upset with me for having you on this podcast. Why are you having this person who fought for this racist government on your show? And I hope that they will actually watch this interview and they will see that 
there's a, a bigger story here and that it's important to talk about this history and, and for all of the good and for all of the bad. And I, I, I do think it matters and I think it's important. And, and I really appreciate you writing this book and some of the other folks who have come on this podcast who served in Rhodesia to speak of their experiences. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and that, that for me has, is what has made it sort of worthwhile really is, is um, how it's um, brought together the sort of military. Um, and we're not kind of um, loony killers and racists and things like that. We're just people serving in the military, you know, and uh, yeah, it's been just wonderful just, just to get the, the support and the, um, I mean, I had one American guy, he was a captain, um, and he was in Iraq, and he said, we were driving around those Humvees, we weren't allowed to get out, we were getting sh shot at all the time, and, and he went to his, his major and he, with a copy of my book, and he said, sir, here's the answer. <laughs> this is how we should do it. You know? And uh, so, yeah, absolutely fantastic. It, it is funny how we we really fail to learn from the past you know as as military forces that we have to relearn lessons all over again mm -hmm. every time we yeah. we get the yeah. conflict yeah 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 absolutely we're always fighting yesterday's war aren't we? yeah 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 honestly if you uh if you know anybody who had been in zanla if you're in contact with them we'd we'd be happy to have them on the show i mean mm -hmm. we're sure. you know we're interested in in you know, history. We're interested in telling yeah. the, the narrative of history. So yeah. um, if if you know of anybody, please send them our way. Certainly will. So yeah, the book will. the books are Fire Force that we're speaking about here tonight. Uh, yeah. Chris's novel, Dislocado Redemption, yeah. and then Survival Course. And yes. uh, Survival Course, the new Survival Course, right. Yeah, the new one. They're all up on Amazon. You can get the Kindle editions and start reading them right now. Yeah. Survival. The order is Fire Force first, then the sequel is Survival Force, and then then there's the novel. And uh, the link is down in the description of this video uh, or podcast, however you're listening to it. So thank you, everyone, who tuned in today. Uh, next Friday, we're going to have Milt Bearden on the show, senior CIA officer. Uh, I've been reading his book here, The Main Enemy, about the final showdown between the CIA and the KGB during the Cold War. This book is amazing. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to Milt. That will be next Friday. Uh, Chris, thank you again for joining us. Uh, thanks, Steve, for your work here. Thanks, Dave. And uh, we'll see all you guys next Friday. Thank you. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks everybody. Thank thanks so me. much, Chris. Thank we appreciate it. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.